Hello and welcome to the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. I'm your host, Alex Danton, and we're excited to announce that we're bringing the Cafe Bitcoin conversation from Twitter Spaces to you on this show, the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, Monday through Friday, every week. Join us as we speak to guests like Michael Saylor, Len Alden, Corey Clipston, Greg Foss, Tomer Strohlight, and many others in the Bitcoin space. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button. Make sure you get notifications when we launch a new episode. You can join us live on Twitter Spaces Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific and 10 a.m. Eastern every morning to become part of the conversation yourself. Thanks again. We look forward to bringing you the best Bitcoin content daily here on the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast. All right, all right. Good morning to all you Cafe Bitcoiners out there. Dombe, good morning. Peter, good morning. DJ, Satoshi, good morning. Jacob, shout out to Joe Carlosari in the audience, nuclear Bitcoiner. Glad to see you guys are all here. Good morning. Good morning, y'all. Good morning, you freedom lovers. Busy night, Dom. How'd you know, dude? How did you Cause know? Because because it's, cause it's uh, let's see, New Year's Eve is amateur night for alcoholics. I'm assuming that the Fourth of July is amateur night for uh, firemen. Yeah, I did. I did work yesterday. We got rocked uh, with a, a wide variety of incredible experiences. Yeah, and on <laughs> top of that, anecdotally, um, we heard sirens last night all night long. That was probably because yeah. he forgot to turn the sirens off. Yeah, no, that time when you heard the siren, we were just going to 7 Eleven to get a dog because the boys at the fire station didn't hook it up with dogs and burgers. And we're like, dude, it's the fourth. What are you doing? So, no, nah, just kidding. That was probably a real call. You know, you know, it was really funny. So, we, we, had a, we had a little street party. And actually, there's a bunch of people on our block having a street party. And this woman comes, this older woman comes out of her house and she's got a cane. And she gets to her car and she looks at her car. She looks at the top of her car and she looks over at me and she says, there's, there's stuff on top of my car. You guys are getting this all over my car. And I didn't say anything, right? I don't want a confrontation. I didn't say anything. I just kind of looked at her. And then she mumbles under her breath, I'm going to call the police. And I'm just like, wow, it's the 4th of July, lady. Do you really think, first of all, do you really think they're going to show up because there's some, there's some, some, you know, stuff from fireworks on the top of your car and and come on it's the fourth of july for god's sakes yeah inevitably we always get the um like a couple barbecue calls and it's like folks please look over the fence and just visualize the barbecue before you call in a 911 fire uh for you know this is coming you know, uh, to turn this back to Bitcoin, I, I did learn a whole bunch yesterday. Alex, thank you for um, having that, that, uh, that space with, uh, with Noodle talking about uh, um, inheritance planning, basically, with Nunchuck. Um, I want to give a shout out to uh, uh, Robert uh, Waho, who's in the audience, who I had a conversation with. And um, I am now, I've ordered three tap signers. I've ordered a couple of uh, encryptable USB drives because he's got this great, you know, the thing is, is like, it's like, what do you do with your seed phrase, right? 
It's like, what do you do with that damn thing? And I, I think I got this right. It's actually pretty simple. You do a you do a multi-sig 204. You give two keys um, to four geographically separated law firms, one key each. You give two other law firms um, instructions on an encrypted USB drive on how to recover your uh, keys for the multi-sig. And then your seed phrase and instructions are redundantly geographically separated. There's no collusion possible um, between the lawyers. And then the only thing that your loved ones get um, are the, um, the, the passphrase to the instructions for the, I believe that's correct, the passphrase to the instructions for the encrypted USB drives. So basically there's no possibility of collusion. Your seed phrase has now been geographically and redundantly saved across, um, you know, multiple, anyways, I, I just thought it was brilliant and it, it really made me feel much better about a long, a long-term stack and only a long-term stack. I mean, you know, any, any smaller stack that I might need to use, um, in the, in the near future, uh, for, um, daily expenses, et cetera, I would, I wouldn't do that with. Translation cafe Bitcoin has turned Peter into a Bitcoin machine. Peter was a Bitcoin machine from day one. I remember when he, when he first called me and I was like, Hey, think about buying some of this Bitcoin stuff <laughs> and watching the arc of his knowledge growth has been pretty impressive. He says he's a boomer and he doesn't understand this stuff, but like he does. This is, this is, this is, this is what happens when you are on, well, you, you listen to Bitcoin cafe daily for like two years. We're all learning, all on this journey. Thanks, by the way, excuse me. Thanks, Dom Bay, for what you guys do, keeping everybody safe on the holidays. There was this really crazy video that I saw the other day. They had this gigantic stock of fireworks basically underneath the back end of a car, and they were keeping, like, their their ammo depot, so to speak, right there. And then like 10 feet away is where they were, where they were actually lighting them off. And one of them kind of exploded and one of the um, live cinders or whatever got into the stash. And that went up like, uh, like an, like an ammo depot. <laughs> it was crazy. I imagine you guys had see some really wild stuff. Yeah. Thank you, brother. Uh, we see some crazy stuff for sure. Sometimes it becomes less crazy and it's hard to determine like what's crazy because especially like when we work in the, in a downtown area, it's like, whoa. Um, but yeah, no shortage of the lengths that people will go uh, to uh, do some like wild and humans are uh, really funny, aren't they? <laughs> very, very special creatures. Very, very special. special. Do you guys have like a scale of one to a hundred, like the crazy scale? That would be pretty funny. You oh, probably can't talk about it, but I bet you do. <laughs> it, it's it, it just something I heard. Let's just say I heard of the other night. There was like a, a random homeless dude that was trying to like grab live electrical cable and it was arcing. And like, I mean, like it's just 
it's just wild stuff, dude. Um, zero to ten, yeah. There's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of tens out there. So I just put in the nest um, what happened to me last night because one of the people that was at our little gathering mistakenly put one of the um, uh, rocket launcher things on its side instead of straight up. Um, so there's a there's a funny little there's a funny little uh, sequence. Uh, I get hit four times. <laughs> nice. It was pretty tame last night. It wasn't too on the fireworks side. Nothing will. I don't know for all if it was like this for everyone else listening and up here talking. In I feel like July fourth, twenty twenty. Like somehow all the industrial level shows that didn't happen because of COVID, like people found a way to get the fireworks. And I feel like the neighborhoods were firing up like stadium level uh, fireworks. I remember 2020 just like sounded like a legitimate shelling going on. Um, and since then, it's never been topped. Yeah, those are the fun ones, man. <laughs> anyway, all right, let's uh, let's intro the show and roll into some Bitcoin topics. Good morning, welcome to Cafe Bitcoin. Our mission for this show is to provide the signal in a sea of noise and teach the other 7 billion people on this planet why there is hope because of this bright orange future that we call Bitcoin. Today we're going to be doing basically open forum discussion. I'm still kind of on vacation. I actually officially am on vacation, but I'm still here. Anyway, and we'll also do some Q&A stuff later. We've got Blockbane Nuclear Bitcoiner going to be coming up. We're going to be talking more about mining and energy with these two gentlemen. Uh, there is a really great video, Jacob, if you want to get this one ready. Um, basically, it's American HODL, and he is laying down some serious signal. Let's play this one first to kind of set the set the stage for the rest of the show. Bitcoin maximalists are people with experience. You know, the pleb movement was a bunch of people who got dumped on by the ICO promoters and all the bad actors from 2017. And they realized that the only thing that's real here is Bitcoin and that Bitcoin is the risk-free rate. And that by just doing very simple, th listen, hodling Bitcoin is very simple, but it's not easy. It's fucking difficult. Every single day you have to wake up and you have to make the decision to hodl. You're going to have to learn some self-discipline, some self-responsibility, some self-control. I mean, caveat emptor, like buyer beware. Like one of the things I've been saying is that if you go out and tell lies in mainstream traditional advertising, the FCC is looking out for you. Burger King can't come out with a Whopper and be like, this Whopper cures cancer. But a shitcoin can come out with anything they want and say that it does anything they want. And because you're used to living in a nerfed world where there are guardians who protect you from evil manipulators and liars right you're used to things that are are being told to you in mainstream media being true or more or less true and so you just go oh yeah well if burger king says it cures cancer then it must cure cancer i guess i'll eat a bunch of whoppers right that's what you're doing that's literally what you're doing when you're believing a shitcoin sales pitch there's no one gonna step in and save you you gotta step in and save you 
You gotta love yourself. You gotta love yourself. Buying shit coins is nihilism. You're just going like, my life is shit. Everything around me is shit. I have no hope for the future. I'm gonna put 10,000 bucks in this thing, and maybe it's gonna 1,000x in the next two months. I don't care if it's an absolute piece of shit. I don't care if it does nothing for the world. I don't care if it's vaporware. I'm either gonna sleep in a tent, or I'm gonna fucking buy a Lamborghini. That's nihilism. That's fatalistic. Bitcoin is rational optimism. You're putting aside something for future you. You're saying, I have a future. I love myself. Things are going to be better for me. I'm going to have a fucking family. I'm going to claw my way out of this fucking morass I find myself in. That's a revolutionary action to like actually love yourself and to actually do the right thing for yourself and put aside money for your fucking future. So hodling starts with self-love. Shitcoiners are into Bitcoin too, man. They're just into your Bitcoin. They want your fucking Bitcoin. Um, I mean, I feel like we could wind up now. <laughs> that was so good. Such a good clip. Morning, Wicked. Morning, guys. I'm uh, just trying to fucking wake up. So that's why I'm quiet. Did anybody have any uh, thoughts on what American Hoddle was saying there? I mean, and not that we could say it any better than he could. He did. He just did. That was pretty on point. My favorite part is that Bitcoin is rational optimism. You know, we all are technically, in a way, speculating until the rest of the world wakes up to what Bitcoin is. But we're doing it rationally, and we're being optimistic, and we understand its fundamental rules. Well said. Are you walking, DJ? I am sorry for the noise. No, don't apologize. It's awesome. Uh, there's a walking maxi that works for Swan that some of you may know. He's like, he's turned um, being in the sun and walking into a thing. Like he's like he's a, a force posture of nature. maxi too. Don't forget. Oh, posture. that's right. Posture maxi as well. You ever see those green lines through people's posture when they're doing interviews? That started with him as well. Isn't that interesting how when we understand Bitcoin and when we get Bitcoin, we start making way healthier decisions and we don't like do crazy shit like the rest of the normies are doing, kind of wasting their time and money. It does change your perspective, doesn't it, on time and what you're doing with your time and, and puts things into, into a perspective that uh, you start being more careful about stuff. At least that's what's happened to me. And I think that I, I've heard other people say the same. Yeah, you also get much more savvy. I was talking to a buddy via message from back home that I haven't talked to in a long time. And he was talking about the commercial uh, real estate stuff. And, and I could tell by all that he, I'm like, dude, this guy is much smarter than when I remember. And he's firing off a bunch of stuff about the financial system. And, and I haven't talked to him in a long time. And I go, hey, dude. Have you been getting into Bitcoin? He's like, yes, dude, like the last year or two. And I'm like, it just, you know, it, it, it's like a different pedigree. All right. <clears throat> Multitasking just a little bit here. Um, you know, the, the, the whole Normieville kind of mindset, I hope, I hope that people are, are waking up uh, to what's going on. It's amazing how many people do not understand banking, who don't understand 
money. Um, and in this next clip that we're going to play for you, basically it's these, it's this gal <clears throat> down in New Zealand who goes to a bank and there's no cash. And I want, when we play this, I want you guys to think about what's actually happening here and, and see what kind of observations you get from this. Jacob, if you're ready, roll it. Well, outrage in Queensland tonight after a local woman rocked up to her bank to withdraw cash, only, be, only to be told they didn't have any. Taryn Compton wanted to grab some notes to pay a tradie, but when she got to the ANZ ATM, she realised she'd forgotten her FPOS card when she asked the teller for the money instead. She was told the bank doesn't carry cash. And Taryn Compton's here to tell us all about her terrible banking experience. Taryn, <laughs> what did you think when you walked into a bank only to be told they don't have cash? <laughs> it was absolutely crazy. I thought she must have misheard what I wanted, if I'm honest. How can you go to a bank and not be able to get your own money out? Taryn, that's what I'm confused about. So what's in the bank if there's no cash? Isn't there a... Like, in the, if you open up the safe, what's in there? What is, how did they explain it to you? They just said, I'm so sorry, we can't help you. There's nothing we can do. We don't have cash here. So did you think maybe that was a temporary situation? That maybe they were going to get some cash tomorrow? <laughs> No, she actually said, we don't carry cash anymore. We can't help you. She did say, if you're desperate for it today, you can transfer it to another bank and oh. try and get it out there, but we can't help. Was she in on how absurd this was? Mm. Like, did she get it was like you were walking into KFC and they said, sorry, we don't do chicken? <laughs> <laughs> no, she, she wasn't. She was just, I'm really sorry, we can't help you. We just don't have money here anymore. Taryn, do you think that banks should carry money, as in cash? I don't. <laughs> they have got my money in their banking system. I should be able to access it, right? Have you heard anyone else have this similar experience, Taryn, or is this the first time that you've come across this? This is the first time I have come across it myself, but it, my social media is blowing up with lots of people with the same experience. What's the vibe of those people, Taryn? I'm, I'm guessing they're not thrilled that they can't access their own cash money. Definitely not thrilled. And people are saying, where is it? Like, you have got my hard-earned cash. Where is it? I want it. And when, you, when the answer that you get is, I just don't have it, it really does get you thinking about our whole banking system. Taryn, you should have sent the lady at the bank to an ATM to get money out to give to you. <laughs> I didn't think of that at the time. Yeah. What, did, what did you do? I transferred it out of that bank into another bank and managed to get it out. Wow. And so you were getting this for a tradie? Is that true? It is true. Okay. All right, you can stop it there. So there was someone in the audience who basically said, hey... Uh, that was Australia, not New Zealand. So thanks for the correction, the clarification. Uh, what did you guys take away from that? I'll start. The, 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 I mean, well, first of all, I got to say that every morning when I hear this arbitrage has been margin called, I think the exact same thing. I've been experiencing this, um, as I've said, over the last few days with my cash card from my brokerage account because MasterCard doesn't want to allow me to withdraw cash. So I have to now move cash into a bank where I can withdraw that cash. Um, I've also experienced it with my credit union. They know they're cashless in the bank, kind of, sort of, that they've made a step towards that because the tellers no longer hand you cash. You go to the cash machine for for any cash withdrawal that you want to 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 get. Um, and what, with that clip, 
what struck me the most is these people think it's funny. They've got, it almost sounds like a laugh track that they got going. And when it happens to them, it's not going to be fucking funny anymore. It's going to be frustrating and it's going to be eye opening. And it's a good thing that we have Bitcoin because, uh, you know, we can, we can now have a, a sound money that, uh, is censorship resistant is unconfiscatable is outside the system. Um, and, uh, it doesn't matter what the fuck the banks do. We are the bank. Anybody else have any thoughts? What did you take away from that? I think this is a good example of people waking up to the fact that we're in a digital age and not many people actually still use cash. It's like less than 5% of all money circulating is in cash form. True point. Yet, for whatever reason, people still think of money as the money in the, you know, in the wallet. Even though in our day-to-day -day lives, most of us don't actually touch cash very often anymore, right? Wicked, did you have something? I was just going to say, you know, I mean, this is uh, something that I've experienced as well. It's kind of was around the time when I was first getting really orange pilled, but, um, yeah, tried to pull out like a decent chunk of change, had to pay some caterers and, uh, they wanted cash. But then of course the bank was like, Oh, you have to call, you know, 24 or 48 hours ahead. If you want to pull out that much cash. So they turned me away and, uh, you know, it was just like another, like, like I said, it was around the time I was like, kind of starting to get orange pills this is another tick and i was like okay all right well fuck this shit <laughs> and then you know probably like within a few months my entire bank account was drained so fuck around and find out could just be that they're trying to go green uh very funny i uh came away with the same observation that peter did that's the thing that I noticed is that they were all kind of laughing about it in in some ways a little nervously, right? So it's like, what do you do when you're when you're confronted by this reality that somebody else might have control over your life? <laughs> it's kind of like, oh yeah, look, in this little town, they're like <clears throat> putting people in cages and uh hee hee ha oh. You know, hope they don't do that to me. It's just weird. Maybe that's the wrong analogy, but it was, it struck me as very interesting behavior to, to laugh about it like that. I kind of hope it happens more often so that people start waking up faster because, you know, like Wicked just said, until people feel the pain, they don't feel a need to go look elsewhere. This is why. The world needs Bitcoin. Yes, I think yes. Here's an interesting little tidbit that I ran across this morning. Small addresses, each with less than one Bitcoin per uh, in the address, are aggressively accumulating Satoshis, collectively stacking approximately 33.8 thousand Bitcoin per month. Now that is an interesting 
thing to me because a month or so ago when we talked about this the last time, it was 28K. Here's the other part of the equation. Bitcoin issuance from subsidies is uh, approximately 27,000 a month. That means that if these addresses are sucking up 33.8 Bitcoin, 33.8 thousand Bitcoin, excuse me, and subsidies are 20,000, people have to be willing to sell or the price goes up, right? So this is distribution uh, in real time that we're watching. Some people are like, well, what if people, you know, hoard all the Bitcoin, they don't give it to anybody else. Well, you're watching it happen, first of all. Uh, but second of all, what price are people willing to sell it at? And uh, if things like BlackRock ETF gets approved, what happens then? Who are they buying it from? It's very interesting. Wicked, I think you were first, then we'll go to DJ. Yeah, I mean, I like to think of this kind of, in you know, inverted. So instead of thinking of like, what price are people going to sell their Bitcoin at? I think it's probably a better, better way to look at it is like, at what price do the things you want become worth it, right? Like in terms of Bitcoin, because... Ultimately, when you sell your Bitcoin, most people, they're not just like sitting in cash. They're doing it because they want to buy something, right? And so <laughs> like really what they're doing, that maybe they don't even know it, but really what they're doing is they're waiting until whatever they want to buy gets cheap enough in terms of Bitcoin. And then they use their Bitcoin, right? Like then they, they, maybe they have to use dollars as medium of exchange still because whoever's selling the thing wants dollars. But ultimately... They're really just using Bitcoin uh, until, you know, the price of, of said thing gets cheap enough. So, you know, I love watching, you know, like the price of, of the average U.S. home, for example, because I know a lot of a lot of Bitcoiners want a home, right? Like we want to have our own land and our own property. So it's kind of fun watching the price of an average house just continuously drop in, in Bitcoin terms. And you know, like at some point, right? Like, you know, when a house is like a, like one Bitcoin, right? When the average cost of a house is one Bitcoin, I'm sure there's gonna be a lot of Bitcoiners who are like, okay, I am probably a good, you know, maybe not a bad trade to, you know, use a little bit of Bitcoin to make a down payment on, on some land or a house. Like, so I feel like that kind of stuff will happen for sure. But yeah, I mean, I don't know, like, I, like I said, though, no, I mean, no one that I know is selling their Bitcoin and then they're just sitting in dollars for, for no reason, right? You're, you're using it to buy shit. That's a great point. DJ? I'm wondering if there's like a way, maybe like, I wish Ant was here for timechainstats.com. He could put like how many Bitcoin are actually like available, like on exchanges or people willing to sell like on OTC desks. I know it's kind of really hard information to find, but the point I'm trying to get to is maybe this is just, you know, everyone now smartening up and trying to figure out how do we buy up all the Bitcoin before BlackRock and all these other ETFs try to have to scoop some up. And what would happen then if when all these ETFs get approved and there's no Bitcoin for sale and it's just circulating in terms of in the economy for goods and services? 
there's always going to be Bitcoin for sale as long as we value dollars. So until dollars become worthless, you know, to society, there there will be a an exchange rate, right? Because again, like if you can buy goods and services with dollars, then you know there's no reason why you wouldn't be able to exchange your Bitcoin for dollars, really. I mean, there might be a premium at some point. <laughs> like, when everyone who has Bitcoin just absolutely don't want dollars. But at the same time, like, again, if you can buy a fucking house with dollars, then what's the difference, really? So I got two comments on this. Um, one, you know, we, we don't really know what's going on. Um, part of this may be that um, people are just getting more of their corn off of exchanges. Um, and also part of it may be that people are getting smart, smarter about coin control. So they're, you know, putting smaller amounts into more addresses. So it's it's hard to really determine exactly, you know, what's happening with this. Uh, there was a guy named uh, Jeff uh, Weniger who put out a question I don't know, yesterday or the day before on uh, Twitter. He said, what is your boldest long shot prediction for the next 10 to 20 years? And I said uh, Bitcoin devaluation in USD terms because I think that is the boldest long-term prediction because it ain't going to happen. Peter, I'm surprised you didn't mention the real cause. This is all happening. It's because of the stack chainers. Oh yeah, well, um, stack chain is a signal. I gotta, I gotta, uh, I gotta say that there's a lot of signal in stack chain. And you know, the, the thing that I said earlier, um, you know, my shout out to Robert Waho. I know him because he's a stack chainer. And there's just like everywhere in the Bitcoin Twitter community, there's really smart people in Bitcoin. Uh, I, and I have the, the um, fortune of being able to learn from them here on, on Cafe Bitcoin and many other places. It's the same with StackChain. There are just some incredibly smart and um, really creative people. And as a matter of fact, uh, the StackChainers uh, have just put out their... Um, their first uh, issue of uh, Stack Chain Magazine, which is a direct competitor for Bitcoin Magazine. And uh, you can go to uh, proofofink.com and uh, purchase a copy. Those were two very good points. Uh, my brain immediately assumed these were people buying Bitcoin, but you're correct, Peter. This It could be people just moving off exchanges or maybe doing UTXO management. So thanks for for, for bringing that up. Good points. All right. Uh, shout outs to Joe Carlosari out in the audience, throwing you an invite if you want to come up. Why do I feel like a golden retriever, Alex? Uh, I don't know. Good boy, Peter. Good comments. Good dog. Good boy. I'm just giving you a compliment. Okay. Uh... I think this deserves a mention. Yesterday, we were talking a little bit about Independence Day. We were talking about the Declaration of Independence. We were talking about freedom, all that kind of stuff. I wanted to point something out. We don't need to necessarily discuss it unless you guys want to, but I thought it deserved a mention. So apparently, <clears throat> a federal judge in Missouri... Um, has granted a preliminary injunction prohibiting, prohibiting, excuse me, the FBI, DOJ, DHS, and other federal agencies from working with big tech to censor social media, censor United States citizens and others on social media. 
Um, that is very interesting to me because there's a bunch of reporting on this subject that's framing this as the judge is blocking the Biden administration and setting back government coordination by years. And I think it's important to remind people, and this is the part that I was saying that is worth a mention in my mind, is, is that, um, as pointed out yesterday, the Constitution of the United States is not there to tell the citizens their, what their rights are. It's there to remind the government of what we, the people, have not given it the permission to do. It's not blocking anyone. They were already blocked. They never had the permission to do that stuff. They were essentially breaking the law. They never had the authority to do this in the first place. It's a reminder to the lizard people where the power stops. All right, I don't need to comment any more on that. If you guys want to, you're welcome to. Holding the government accountable is the rule of law. We all have to do it. Any infringement upon any of our rights, no matter how small, is an infringement upon everybody's rights. I will die on this fucking hill. It's true. And if you, you know, for the longest time, for decades, men have been told to sit down, to be quiet, to not speak up, to don't talk about politics, don't talk about religion. Well, guess what? The lizards never stopped. They convinced you to do that, you dumbasses. So Peter is correct. Stand the hell up. Do what's right. When you see something that's wrong, call it out. And don't be pressured by the lizards to, to sit down and shut up and be meek and submissive because that's what they want you to do. Well, it's also important to discuss that uh, the individuals that want to take these rights, they're using the system against, uh, against the citizenry in order to actually steal their rights away from them and be able to garner more power so they can you know, continue to continue stealing more rights so they can continue to accumulate more power. Yeah, man. They they never stopped. Like, they just got you to stop. Yeah, someone posted yesterday, like, um, who, I think it was, I think it was Dr. Ross, who the best presidents were. And I started looking up different presidents and, and uh, as much, you know, I know he did some tough, really atrocious stuff uh, in some people's eyes, but, but Andrew Jackson had some really good viewpoints on government. One of them being that he despised this kind of concept of, of a lifetime tenured government, uh, you know, uh, official that just made their career in politics. He really felt it was supposed to be really simple, transient, where you come in, you do your duty to the people, do your service, your time, and then you get out. And tons of kind of opinions on exactly this topic. Well, it's also important to acknowledge for this topic too. It's not like it's like good and analogs that I like to use are lawyers. Like politicians can still play that kind of role. Like I, I get that. Like politicians tend to, um, we tend to all view them as like snakes and everything. But there are individuals that can be patriotic that go into these positions to actually defend the rights of the individual. So it's like just a kind of like a sober take on the whole conversation. It's not everybody has to be um, an evil or a bad actor. You, you have to have people that are going to fight for the people in order to maintain it. Yeah, there's both. I make a clear distinction. Like I don't say everybody in government's bad, just like I don't say every fireman's a douchebag. Like it's, it, there are individuals that some of them are, are 
hungry for power. Others are there because they actually believe in defending um, the citizenry against the government. It just depends. They're not all well, the same. And, and, the, and the hard part, too, is that, like, the, the individuals that are the good actors, like, they have the radically shorter stick and, the like, they have much less leverage to pull on because the people that are going to do the right things for the right reasons, they aren't, um, aren't going to be breaking rules and stealing rights and um, doing illegal activities in order to uh, like garner that power. Like they're just, yeah, it's just, it's an unfair fight that people don't realize is actually going on. And there's also so much temptation. This is the problem with fiat money, right? When you have a money printer and there, you can just make money out of thin air, right? It was guy Swan the other day to Swan salon. He said, never work for some for something that another man can just create for free out of thin air. Like he was talking about the money and like what's happening in, in unfortunately in our government today by ours, I mean the United States of America is they print the money and then there's corruption because now there's favors. Like who gets the money, <clears throat> who gets the kickback, who gets all of this stuff. And I don't know if you guys saw that clip, but there, there was that one guy supposedly who worked with BlackRock was basically going around crowing about the fact that they could just buy anybody in Washington that they want. They just throw money at them. And it's, uh, where's that money coming from? It's, uh, it's pretty, you know, Peter, go ahead. I, I, I got two things to, to, to say here. One, um, when it comes to, when we say things like they can print money out of thin air, I think we should just start saying that, they can steal from us at any time they want because that's exactly what can and are. Yeah. Yeah. Can and are. Yeah. Can and are. They steal from us whenever they want by printing money out of thin air. Um, and then as far as the politicians go, you know, it's funny. Sometimes we don't really think about what the actual mechanics of that is, of, of politics is. And, you know, I don't really like defending politicians, but the reality is that, you know, one of the adages from politics is the best legislation is legislation that nobody likes because compromises have been made. And if you think about it, think about being in a room with 420 other people and, and trying to come to consensus about anything. You know, it's a it's a it's a hard process to do. And and that's not to say that I agree with how they do things or what they're do doing. But I will say that for many of us, we can just say, well, I don't understand. You know, they, they could just vote for the right thing. Um, and you're, you're right. They can. But the it, it's hard to it's hard to be in a room with with your significant other and come to consensus about a lot of things imagine being in a room with 420 other people and trying to come to some kind of consensus about some of these some of these things and i think there are a lot of politicians who take their jobs very seriously and they take their their responsibilities very seriously but i also think that you know we, we see the corruption and the corruption just leaks into the system and it just becomes like this, this, this kind of pall or this shadow over the entire process. And, and, uh, you know, Bitcoin cures this because, because you're not going to, you're not going to be able to, um, fund the, the, uh, the, the surveillance, uh, industrial complex, the, the, the prison industrial complex, 
all of these things that are funded by this unlimited supply of money, this this stealing from from everybody um, goes away when when or, or at least goes away in some part. Uh, I don't know if it goes completely away, but it goes away in some uh, in in a in a big way um, when we get on a sound money Bitcoin standard. Yeah, one of the key things you said there, Peter, was complex. And it just seems the deeper the government goes into making decisions on things that maybe is a little bit outside of their scope, the more complex things become. And and then the more uh, interests get involved. Whereas, you know, if imagining when government first started, the simplicity of just doing the will of the people and taking care of the fundamentals of the people, still going to have a lot of uh, differing opinions, but those opinions become almost irreconcilable when you have this push much deeper into, into parts of life uh, where the government's trying to, you know, play mom and dad. Well, and Peter, you, uh, you made a good point too, like, especially with using the example of uh, within the household of having two individuals that you're trying to come to consensus to, to think about like, think about the 420 individuals or politicians that are trying to like come to a consensus over a point, like each one of those 420 individuals is also fighting for like many multiple different causes for different constituents um, and different like motivations and, and movements and stuff like that. It's like, you get to that point and you're looking at like, if you just assume that, every one of those individuals is fighting for at least two or three different variables. Like you're, you're coming to like basically what 1200 different, um, different points that people are trying to like fight for and come to like some sort of agreement on like good luck finding any sort of um, legislation that is going to actually satisfy the desires of even half, let alone a third of that group. So like, I think, I think people just need to, have a sober kind of conversation with himself and accepting that like basically well, no compromise is going to be perfect for all, all parties involved. Maybe that's so, but here's the one point of consensus that, uh, that everybody is, is tied into and that is compensation or that is money. And you know, what does it take to win that vote? 10 grand, 50 grand, hundred grand. That that's where the issue is. So here's this little statistic for you. In the last five years, this is from Steve Hinkey. In the last five years, the surge in government spending has resulted in U.S. billionaires' wealth jumping from 15% to 18% of GDP. This is the Cantillon effect in process. And, the, and literally the thing that, that does have consensus is money. This is the reason why we're in this room is because Bitcoin is a different form of consensus, but we all agree that our time and our labor has value to us. And that is true for everybody. And if you can get it for free by doing favors, AKA signing legislation, I mean, some people are going to do that. And before somebody corrects me, I'll correct myself. I don't know why I said 420 because it's 435 uh, representatives in the, uh, in the house of representatives. So I, I don't know why 420. Maybe maybe it's uh, maybe it's a little hungover still from last night. Who knows? DJ, go ahead. Yeah, I was just gonna say what you just said, Alex. I think is exactly why I believe that all forms of money have always been and will always be simply a belief system. And I know this is a little bit of a tough subject for a lot of us, but 
you know, and I do agree that there are fundamental principles and that Bitcoin does have the best sound money properties. But at the end of the day, unless people believe in this creation of money, then they're not going to accept it. And if they don't accept it, then it's not going to be money for them and for the rest of the world. DJ Satoshi following in the footsteps of Tomer. He even sounds like him. All right. Uh, open forum and Q&A for the next 30 minutes. What do you guys want to talk about? I guess something I got to do real quick. Dom Bay, you're in charge. I bet he loves when I do that. Well, he loves when you do that, when you don't even give him a subject to talk about. <laughs> Figure it out. Well, there's a bunch of yahoos in here who have, have opinions about all kinds of things. So, like, go ahead. We've also got Dr. Jeff and Joe in the audience. If you guys feel like giving a market update, I'm going to throw you guys some invites. Hey, um, DJ, since Ant's on the stage, maybe you should ask him that question again, because I thought that was an interesting um, potential uh, statistic for him to have on uh, time chain stats. Yeah, good morning, Ant. Good to see you. I'm curious if there's a way for you to put a stat of how many Bitcoin are on exchanges and also maybe a stat, if possible, of how much Bitcoin is like being put on the market for sale, whether you can pull that from OTC dealers or estimate however you would have to do that i'm not sure yeah i already have data for like inflows and outflows inside of uh like the topic changes i'm just not sure on the site i had it on there for a little while i'll revisit it maybe there's a you know an opportunity to back on Ants in the Matrix. We need to send Joe Neo Carlosari to rescue you. Stand by. Can you hear me now? It's Still getting better. DJ, what like what uh, are you just looking for like uh like as far as like just leveraging up uh, Ant's website to have it just be like a uh, amalgamation of just like all these different data points or is there something in particular like with that relationship you're looking for? Yeah, I mean, I just want to figure out how do we tell people to buy up all the Bitcoin before BlackRock and all these other ETFs get approved, whether that happens this year, which it probably won't, or next year or in two years from now. I think we want to make sure that we buy it all up before they can and that then they pay a much higher premium and it hopefully restricts them from playing funny games. The OTC data would be really interesting, but I like as a, as a LARP that doesn't um, have an understanding or um, visibility into those systems I, I don't like i don't know if you'll be able to get like the actual api data as far as like how much bitcoin is being traded otc but that would be very interesting to see hey dom bay i think gabriel has his hand up gabriel, oh, am, I, am i uh am i i didn't realize alex passed me the torch dude 
I missed that part. Did he do a little drop on me real quick? Yes, he did. He's going to kill me on this one. He pushed you in front of the bus before you realized that there was a bus. You, you and you got you got open mic, Dom, because he said you can talk about whatever you want to talk about. Dude, I can't believe I missed this biggest opportunity of my life, dude, and I let this pass me. I just I know he's getting coffee. I picture him hopping on a four wheeler, going to a little coffee shack that's somewhere on the premise, getting the coffee, laughing. They'll be like, Dom's struggling right now. All right, Gabe, you got this, bro. I missed my window. Don't do like me, dude. Take advantage of this and, and uh, preach for us. Thanks, guys. I have a quick question. Uh, have you seen that uh, in all of these refilings from the ETFs, uh, everyone is disclosing Coinbase as their custodian? Uh, how close are we from a CIS 102 confiscation of all Bitcoins from Coinbase and MicroStrategy? And, and is this a concern for all of you? It's definitely a concern, and I just don't know how possible it would be in today's day and age. But yeah, I think a lot of Bitcoiners worry about that. Joe would be a perfect person to answer this question, in my opinion, but he might be busy with a client. I mean, you have to ask yourself, you know, what would lead the government to do such a thing and you know that mean they would have to kind of be admitting that bitcoin is a big enough threat or at least a big enough deal to you know national security that they would want to confiscate as much of it as they can which would be in a way like an admission of defeat <laughs> so i don't know like it's kind of an interesting idea though because you know it's like what could really lead to that path and then once that path is is taken you know is that really is that the real signal right there that's like okay hyper bitcoinization is probably right around the corner at that point you know if you've got one of the most powerful nations trying to you know literally trying to stack as much as they can by stealing it from their own citizens i mean that'd be that'd be pretty wild i feel like it's inevitable uh, i'm just thinking when that would happen i don't know i mean again like i don't know if it's inevitable because you know it would cause so much chaos and it might cause more problems than you know than they're willing to deal with like do do we know that they're not stacking do we know that there's not countries that aren't stacking yeah i mean because the, the price isn't high enough yet for that to be happening and, and you know realistically right i mean countries aren't going to stack millions <laughs> unless they're i mean el salvador right is stacking like millions of dollars worth of bitcoin but like a, you know a, a bigger company is not going to just be stacking millions of dollars of bitcoin they'll be stacking billions or maybe even trillions at a certain point and but so it, but if you're simultaneously suppressing the price through manipulation and then stacking i mean we talk about this all the time so why why isn't that governments can't do the same thing? Because they would run out of Bitcoin very quickly to actually stack. Like, you know, <laughs> they could only do that for like so long before the whole thing just melts up in terms of price, right? As long as we all keep taking our Bitcoin into self-custody, and there's literally only a fixed amount that you can do that with. And so, you know, it's like suppressing the price only works so long for a, 
fixed supply asset that's in heavy demand. So I mean, I don't, I don't believe governments are doing that at the moment because uh, you know. I don't think it, would, it it wouldn't last very long before things would just start breaking on and off ramps would start breaking liquidity would completely dry up, you know, like you wouldn't be able to buy Bitcoin anymore at a certain point because there would be none left. The a comment that DJ made about whether it's possible, of course it's possible. Like the government can do anything they've already shown that they would and they can. So the, the, then becomes well sure it's possible but what is it probable what is the what are the odds and what are we seeing and, and all of that kind of thing and i think so far it's pretty clear that they have no intention at least at the moment to do anything like that so personally i'm not super worried about that do i think that that's a potential attack vector absolutely and i talk to clients about that as a potential attack vector if they're concerned about it uh but that doesn't mean it's imminent. In a way, it is actually inevitable for governments to need Bitcoin because when it is the, like more commonly accepted and understood as the money, then they're going to need the money in order to spend it on all the things they spend today. They're no longer going to be able to spend fiat. So it's just a matter of when are they going to get to that point. I think another interesting thing to consider <clears throat> is just you know fundamentally and technologically bitcoin is, is is just a better monetary system you know it's more secure <laughs> it's more valuable you know like it, it just it, it's just fundamentally better than what we have now so at a certain point i think you know whoever's in charge of of all the financial stuff and in these countries are just going to realize that they ought to be tied into Bitcoin and start building out around that financial system instead as their own continues to, you know, degrade and collapse as we've been seeing, you know, it's kind of the, the, the cracks are starting to appear in the legacy system. And so they're going to need a new system that's better and that is more robust. And I think that, you know, what will inevitably happen is they'll realize Bitcoin is the one that <laughs> it's, the, it's the right choice. It's the one that's like, you know, the most robust and secure, the one that is uh, least likely to be manipulated. And I mean, it's an open protocol, so anyone can join. I, I don't, yeah, like, I don't think the governments are, you know, I know like uh, we have a lot of us like to be doomers and, we don't trust the government, and I, I get that. But I also don't think it would make much sense for them to, for example, confiscate Bitcoin. It just, like, to me, like, what's what would be the benefit of doing that? You know? Like, what what, what would be the benefit of doing that? I think all Maybe. you would do is, you would, just, you would just be sending a signal that Bitcoin is won. You know, and then on top of that, you're going to open up, you know, the floodgates of of all sorts of, you know, litigation and, and friction. That's people aren't just going to hand over their Bitcoin, you know, like that's <laughs> that's not going to happen like that. So I, I just don't really think that it would make much sense for them to even try. Well, but yeah, I think. A, sorry, sorry, don't go ahead. It, no, Gabe, you, you go ahead. No, I, I'm just. Uh, 
I'm just thinking, if you're a regulated organization in the U.S. and suddenly you get 100% reserves in Bitcoins need to be kept in the U.S. and cannot be withdrawn from foreigners. And you know every withdrawn from Coinbase needs to be supervised and approved and just create a lot of incentives or blockings just to... Make sure those bitcoins stay in the U.S. It, and and it might not be because Bitcoin is winning, maybe because it's uh, the BRICS uh, coin is winning, or something else, or or Zaporinia got knocked, or something else. And you know, in the middle of the mess, you should say no one can withdraw, and these bitcoins are staying in the U.S. under legal jurisdiction and supervision of the. It government. seems like uh, it seems to me like a like a an unnecessary worry, Gabe. And the reason I say that is, is that self-custody exists. If somebody's worried about that, just take self-custody and then you don't have to worry about it. And then for people who aren't worried about it, then they don't worry about it. I don't know. If someone's concerned, just do the thing. Yeah, we can mention like, what would the benefit be? The only one I can see is the benefit of trying to buy time to slow things down. If things got to the point where they were moving more rapidly uh, than desired. Another thing that's important to think about, Alex talks about all the time, is that we refer to the U.S. as this large entity. But then you also got to think like, okay, if they were to do something where they're going to confiscate Bitcoin, which part of the government is going to carry that out? And are they prepared uh, logistically to even try to do something like that? Who's going to do that? The IRS? Who Who's going to be the collectors there? Do they have the infrastructure to try to track people's self-custody down and pursue that. I mean, that can, that can bankrupt a nation just as much as trying to take on too many military fronts all at once, uh, if not quicker. So I really, at this time, looking at the infrastructure of things, uh, can only see an attempt like that being something to slow, slow it down, to go, to scare people versus, and, and again, I think it's something that we don't, don't have to worry about because, um, you know, it's, it's a different world. We always talk about the confiscation of gold and, and it's different. And we talk about prohibition, which is different times. Those things had some interesting, uh, results. Um, neither of them resulted in the, uh, you know, goal at the time, supposedly, of outlawing alcohol or, or confiscating gold. They had some short-term effects, but long-term the show went on. Um, so it's just interesting to think about who would do that. And I don't see any entity in the U S that could successfully carry out a confiscation of Bitcoin at this time. Yeah, I, I agree with, with your comments. I'm just saying that if all these massive ETFs are all kept and custodied by the same entity, like the, the honeypot becomes more interesting and more important. I wonder how how their uh, how their accounts are are secured, right? I mean, I'm assuming it's probably some pretty elaborate multi-sig setup, and I wonder if you know, like, I wonder how it all works. Honestly, I mean, it must be. I guess they they probably have a decent amount in in hot wallets because you know funds are moving around all the time, but. I don't know, it'd be interesting just to kind of under, to understand that better, like how institutional grade custody works. 
haven't really thought about it much. Hey guys, thank you. This is Danny from Argentina. And I would give you the, the third world uh, approach on this confiscation thing. Uh, they don't need to confiscate the Bitcoin. Just you have a lot of wind, Danny. Sorry? You have a oh, lot yeah. of wind. It's very hard to hear what yeah, you're saying. I, yeah, I'm walking. Sorry. Is it better that way now? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Uh, I meant that uh, they don't need to confiscate the Bitcoins on uh, Coinbase or whatever other chain. They just uh, statize. I don't know how to say that in English, but they... Uh, they confiscate the whole company, you know, and they say, eh, okay, this is now a uh, uh, official uh, federal uh, company, and they just uh, get hold of word, everything there. That, that's this, the, that's the, the third world style, you know. <laughs> Governments around here, they just statize the, the, the whole companies and say, well, this is a, a government company now. So... They just uh, keep everything, not just a Bitcoin. That's what I wanted to say. Well, what could happen at some point is, you know, these really large custodians could essentially just become like the banks of the future, right? I mean, they kind of already are in, in a sense, but even more so. Right. So, I mean, in that sense, I guess maybe the, this, you know, the country could nationalize Coinbase and <laughs> make it their new, <laughs> their new national bank or something. I don't know. Yeah, that's what I mean. Exactly. Uh, that's the way governments do this kind of things uh, here in South America, you know, in, in Venezuela, here in Argentina. Uh, it happened in Brazil and in Uruguay, all our countries here in South America. They just uh, keep the, the companies. Speaking of banks in the future, we actually already have uh, future banks in Bitcoin. They're technically all custodial Bitcoin wallets are technically your banks now. So when it comes to nationalizing companies um, to acquire Bitcoin, if the Bitcoin is self-custodied by the company, isn't that kind of analogous to acquiring a signing device and just assuming that you have the Bitcoin? I don't, I don't understand the question. Can you reword it? So <laughs> I didn't so understand. So Gabriel's talking about, you know, companies being nationalized. So we use, let's just use um, uh, MicroStrategy for ex as an example. So if MicroStrategy is nationalized, then, you know, you assume that you, certainly in, certainly up to this point prior to Bitcoin, if you nationalized a company, you got all of that company's assets because there's no way for that company to to uh, prevent the government from acquiring those assets. Where with Bitcoin, if the company is actually self-custodying the, their, their Bitcoin on, the, uh, on their balance sheet, then the board of directors has the opportunity to say, 
yeah, you can have all the company, but sorry, we're not giving you the keys. You, you don't get the Bitcoin. And so it's analogous to when the government um, uh, uh, confiscates a signing device. They put the signing device in the in the property room. And, you know, three months later, they come out with this news about how the Bitcoin has been taken off of this signing device and they don't know how it happened. Yeah, but but you're assuming that they're not uh, applying violence, and and that's why they they can confiscate because they apply violence. If they say to the board, "Hey guys, you give me the keys, or you're going to jail, or we're gonna kill you, or whatever," this is the way uh, things go when 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 everything turns uh, difficult <laughs> for just for put in a word there, but when when shit hits the phone, well, violence is always applied. This is, well, if that, you've got that's a, my experience. Yes, I, I agree with you 100%, but I think the difference is now if you have a, um, a 9 of 12 multi-sig and you are only able to acquire um, eight of those individuals or eight of those, those keys, um, you've got a problem. Also, yeah, sure, are, but... Are, distributed geographically so you know ownership technically isn't you know all residing in the states right i mean that's probably the play so if you're if you're a large custodian or a large institution with a lot of bitcoin the play is to have you know your your keys distributed geographically in different jurisdictions so that you know no single government can force every single one of the key holders to sign yeah it, you're right we could but uh, i don't think i really don't think that even coinbase is doing that now i i don't think so the, it's, it's also you have to think it's the threat of violence so with with like executive order 6102 the amount of that the amount of actual you know folks that were charged under that there there were very few that that avoided, um, you know, the, the amount of folks that avoided like turning in their gold was like more than, more than 50%. And then the actual people that were charged under that law were, it was, it was very few. There was like maybe one or three. So I, I think it's, it's the threat of violence, not, not the actual violence being carried out. Here's, here's the other part. The, the question is, well, you know, Coinbase, for example, or our institutions like this who are potentially large honeypots at risk. And, you know, I doubt some people are like, I doubt that they're geographically dispersing the keys. I would, I would suggest differently. I, I know for a fact there are very, very large institutional custodians who do shard the keys in different jurisdictions intentionally to uh, avoid exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, these, you know, as much as we like to shit on these shitcoin casinos, I mean, they, you know, they, they're handling a lot of Bitcoin. They kind of, kind of have to know what they're doing, at least with like, <laughs> with like securing their Bitcoin. Right. At least you'd hope so. So, I mean, they're not idiots. Well, some of them 
might be like you have the FTXs of the world, et cetera. But uh, they didn't have Bitcoin. Well, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you're talking about traditional institutional custody, for example, for example, like a Bank of New York Mellon, this is not a new concept. I mean, this has been going on for a couple hundred years now, and the entire concept is that they have a fiduciary duty and they are responsible. Meaning, if they mess it up, then uh, they're held liable for it. So those are two different sort of attack vectors, I, su I suppose. One is, all right, well, if we give up the uh, the assets, then, uh, you know, we're, our, our customers may come after us. Uh, their attack vector being coercion, as Danny said, by force. And if those things are sharded geographically under laws that basically with different countries that say they cannot uh, do that. So let's say they have fiduciaries that have control of the signing process in a different country and the country itself says you can't do that or it's against the law. Well, there are some potential protections there. I also think it's important, and I know we've talked about this now for a bit with confiscation, but there, there's a fine line. You know, we live now in, a, in an information age where information is available in real time, much different than back in the day when you would hear about something and the next time you get information on it would be a week or two weeks later in a newspaper or something like that. And so we know that the government benefits from having people just working, uh, not engaged, uh, somewhat asleep. And any kind of action like this, a confiscation, forget about Bitcoiners, there's an alternative effect that could occur where if too many people are kind of, uh, you know, be become aware of, of an action that they perceive to be overstepping, it wakes a bunch of people up and it could actually swing a huge amount of people, even with the fear of violence and all that, uh, towards Bitcoin. And so it's just a different time and, and something like, if you imagine with what happened with gold, and I know they're different, or prohibition happening in today's age where information's available in real time, it's a whole nother animal. It's a whole nother thing to try to attempt. It's, it's very, seems to me, very difficult. You know, it'd be interesting to me is if a country like El Salvador passed legislation that basically says, if you are a fiduciary and you have the responsibility of signing uh, a sharded key set, for an institution, you it is against the law for you to sign under uh, compulsion from a foreign government. That would be cool. That would turn a country like El Salvador into the future Switzerland. What Swiss what Switzerland used to be before they were compromised by the United States government. <laughs> Isn't that that's part a, of the reason why one. why Jack uh, uh, Mahler's has moved the headquarters of of strike to, or it's not actually the headquarters of strike, but the entity that that has a controlling interest in strike to El Salvador. Yeah, possibly. I don't know what's motivating Jack there, but that, and I think the tax laws are pretty favorable down there. Speaking of Jack, did you guys hear about his uh, Money Matters podcast that he's starting? Really excited for that personally. Yeah, that drops today, right? The first uh, Jack Squared episode with uh, yep. with the Jack and Jack. 
Yep. Are you jacked? I'm jacked. At the end of the day, I think uh, we should uh, keep pushing uh, people to self-custody, you know, people and, and companies also, obviously. So when you really have a self-custody and, and you split your keys maybe or whatever, it's much, much difficult for any government or, or, or powerful entity to to go get it. So uh, I think that's what we keep on pushing, self-custody and take care of your Bitcoin yourself. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what the white paper says, right? If you read it, it says to remove the need for any intermediary, any financial institution. It's peer-to-peer -peer digital cash. Here's the thing, though. Like, you, that's a... I take I take what you're saying and I, I don't disagree with it, but at the same time, it's like you, your opinion is not going to matter to someone who's a fiduciary in charge of these these company treasuries. Like, why does uh, a, a micro strategy do institutional custody? A, a really good point was made in this space not too long ago, a couple of days ago, where someone said, well, they they want somebody to sue. There's nobody to sue if you do self-custody. You're 100% responsible for your own custody. Now, I personally think that that's a good idea if you're an individual, but I think you're going to be hard-pressed to uh, convince a public company or, or someone who's safeguarding other people's assets to do that. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. They're solving a need. They're solving a problem for these institutions. So you're totally right. These businesses will exist as long as they continue to provide a service and a solution for these businesses. But I think somebody as smart as Michael Saylor and MicroStrategy, I think they're probably already working on the back end to create their own shell company or whatever you want to call it that's going to be their personal custodian so that they can remove that risk of having a third party custody it for What it. would be the advantage of having a... a, a, a subsidiary or a different legal entity as a custodian of of the company treasury it uh, because you have you own that subsidiary versus somebody like coinbase that he doesn't control coinbase yeah but that's a legal structure like what is the advantage of that like you could just take self-custody right but he's doing it through a subsidiary that he owns so he's providing that service that uh, Coinbase is not providing for him. He's providing it to himself through his own company. So I think that makes more sense because then he's closer to that company. Whereas right now, technically, anytime you have an institution or a other custodian, you're it giving it, up it your actually, ownership of that Bitcoin. So he it actually doesn't. That. It doesn't make sense to me because, I mean, what are you really doing? You're rolling your own custody. And see, here's the problem. This is a huge misconception i think amongst bitcoiners nowadays is that like there are certain i'm not going to name names but there's certain entities out there that are like we're rolling our own custody and they're crowing that like that's some kind of a good idea and people aren't thinking this through all right why, why do high security physical installations it, i mean what's the deal with those things like if you're physically geographically sharding a key off in three different countries and you have actual physical security. I'm talking real security. Vaults, dudes with guns, our body armor, protocols, 24-hour surveillance, surveillance, etc. Here's the thing that people are missing. 
that stuff is not free. That is expensive as hell. And startups in, in Bitcoin can't afford that. Hello? So anybody right. who's like, yeah, we're going to roll our own custody. What does that mean? Sailor sleeps with a, a gold card for $4.5 billion worth of Bitcoin under his pillow? This hell is not, yeah. This is not smart. And, and Bitcoiners need to wake the fuck up to this part. Well, isn't that kind of the beauty of Bitcoin being a digital asset is that it doesn't cost a lot to do that, to be a custodian? I mean, yes, you may still need a guard yeah, but you're or two. Conflating, you're conflating a personal stash with a, with a massive, massive amount of wealth. Like this is the same thing we used to run into in the gold industry. People are like, well, just take delivery of your gold. Look, I agree with that to an extent, but are you going to take a delivery of a million dollars of gold? What do you do with that? Do you have right, the facilities but, in your house to protect that? Are you, what are you going to do? You're going to hire guards to walk around your well, house? For example, yeah, no, these are great points. But for example, with something like MicroStrategy, that's what you have multisig for. So he could do a, you know, a massive multisig for the company. I get Hopper. it. But you still have to physically protect those devices or those signatures, not? Yeah, absolutely. But by See, it always comes back. Okay, you now we're talking in circles. Grace, good morning. Hey, good morning. How you doing? I just uh, I gotta re respectfully disagree with you completely, Alex. I think that uh, you're supposed to use Bitcoin in the manner that it was designed as a tool, right? You say you're, this yourself. We talk about you know being a fan of soft war and the Bitcoin uh, hash rate being an impenetrable wall, right? Multisig is the solution here. And using a third-party custodian is just playing the old game. It's not moving on to the new game. You're using their rules, and you're introducing a new attack vector that weakens Bitcoin. It doesn't strengthen it at all. So I completely disagree with your assertions uh, and your position. I think it's old thinking, and that if these companies just can't do self-custody, then maybe Bitcoin isn't an asset they should be holding. Okay, here's the thing. You're saying I'm supporting this concept. I'm not necessarily supporting the concept. I'm just trying to explain to you guys this is the reality. Now, you say you were supposed to use Bitcoin in this certain way. And this is the thing that I've, I've, tried, I've, I've tried to get people to understand. Like, we're the first cohorts of Bitcoiners. You realize that with mass adoption... People are going to come to Bitcoin for their own reasons on their own terms in their own way. And they're going to use it the way they think they should. Whether you like that or not, that's what's going to happen. And what I've been trying to explain is that there are certain institutions and certain individuals that want institutional custody. Whether we like it as Bitcoiners or not, that is just the facts. And I'm not, I'm not saying they're right. I'm just saying this is what's happening. This is the real world. Well, yeah, I, mean, I think... Go ahead, Don. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, I, I think there's some good points on each side. To, to what Alex is saying and defend that a little bit, not just because he let me um, co-host for like two minutes when he stepped away, but just because I genuinely mean this, you look at a look at the bylaws of an organization. Um, bylaws oftentimes will direct very specifically the way that an organization institution can or can't hold funds. 
And so that's just a simple concept in that there's a lot of stuff rooted uh, in the in the legacy system on how funds are held that and, and, and a lot of institutions to change the bylaws is a massive undertaking. So that alone could be just one example on how uh, an institution could be prevented from some like self custody just because it's it's simply laid out in their bylaws that they hold funds with an institution. Uh, you know, not to mention the legal framework behind it. So those things do exist and they're real. And, uh, you know, it's, it's going to take time for solutions, maybe a hybrid of self-custody. Again, I still like this concept where third party is not the um, primary holder, but they're just a verifier and a backup plan to strengthen self-custody in a way, maybe some changes at the institutional level. It'll take time to see how it goes. But, but in the meantime, you know, uh, we're, you know, I think there's a lot of barriers for institutions uh, for self-custody for sure. I think we can go back to what we were talking about, the 435 um, representatives trying to come to consensus. And, you know, I, it took me it took me a year to self-custody. I'm not a, I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but I'm not a dummy. And I spent a lot of time, I mean, a lot of time trying to understand this thing and, and going from my my TradFi, you know, fiat mindset and, and, and ridding myself of the of the fiat virus that I still have. I still haven't been completely inoculated against it. And so, you know, it's going to be the same process for everybody who is coming into Bitcoin, they go through, everybody goes through the kind of the same iteration. I mean, we can all, everybody in this room that is self-custodying can, can look back on their process and how, or not everybody, but probably most everybody in this room can look back on their process and they can see similarities if they compare it with everybody else's. And it's not something, I doubt it's something that everybody did right from the, right from the jump. And maybe in the future, you know, maybe in the future when when you have digitally native individuals who are are running things, not just uh, coming up through the ranks, but are actually running things, you know, in 20 or 30 years, um, maybe that will change. And maybe, you know, that'll just be the way that the way people do things. And it'll just become part of the lexicon of of how you handle your money. Um, but, you know, right now, I think Alex is correct there. It's it's not there. People are going to do whatever they people are going to do things how they think is best and a lot of them are going to get burned and that's just part of the process that that almost everybody in this room has gone through i i also think that there's different perspectives in life and uh you know if you've not walked in a certain man's shoes how do you know how he how he thinks or what he thinks is risky or not you understand what I'm saying? Like if you've never been responsible for protecting four and a half billion US dollars of purchasing power, it's really easy to cast judgment on that person, but you don't know what they're dealing with. You don't know the risk factors or the, or the risk vectors that they're analyzing. And so there, I mean, you, you got to take those kind of things into consideration. It's very easy as Bitcoiners for us to go, well, this is the way you should be doing it because we're part of the first cohort and we think this way. Um, and we may or may not be right, but it's like, you got to give room for people to figure stuff out. Alex, that's, that's a critical point right there, because just in my experience with a very irrelevant little speck 
in the work that I kind of did with the firefighters to, to be the first union to self-custody Bitcoin. Um, the complexities of just an organization of size of, of just 115 members, I mean, I can share personally, it's tremendous. And this is why I'm, when I'm talking to other unions right now and they want to take big swings, I always encourage them, hey, avoid this, like get off the price and just start very simple to the point where people almost don't even care because it's inconsequential. And then you can learn and, and start, you know, taking steps. But again, just in that experience, I had individuals coming out of the woodworks asking, how are, how are we holding this? What, and, and if that education isn't there, to Alex's point, you'll, you'll get uh, overruled very quickly if you're in an institutional organization saying, guys, trust me on this. We get the cold card. We put it on there. I keep the keys in my little safe at home. And they go, so, I'm sorry, what? Um, this is over. This whole this conversation is over. We're done with this. Like, there's the exit. And, and we understand your spot in the institution. Get out. Um, because this stuff makes me very uncomfortable. Uh, we have insurance that protects against lawsuits from our memberships. Uh, from being sued for mishandling funds. And, and what you're talking about sounds to me very scary. Uh, it's something I really want no part of. So there is a huge amount, and that's only a small organization. I can't even imagine one of a thousand, ten thousand, you know, multiple members with boards, investors, like next level. I guess we're going to see how this evolves. Like personally, me speaking just for myself, I, I for self custody. <laughs> Um, but that's me. Like when you've got these big institutions getting involved, I'm not so sure they're going to think the same way. I guess we're going to see how this all unfolds. Terrence, yeah, do you... go ahead. Dom. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say for anyone that's self-custody, we all know that feeling, right? It's one of the best feelings in the journey of Bitcoin when you finally take self-custody and you discover that, I would say secondary, the best one after is running a node, knowing that you're contributing to the to the network and the protocol. But like, man, you know, it is a great feeling. And I'm sure that that feeling, if set up in a certain way, could could also carry over to institutions. Um, and they go, wow, this is cool. We're not affected by X, Y, and Z or some, you know, global crisis. Like, we just have this. Yeah, feels good. All right. Well, t I want one quick other thing I wanted to ask Terrence. Do you have any thoughts on any of this from uh, um, from your background and what you see? Yes. Um, so when I worked on Wall Street, both in big law firms and big banks, we used uh, custodians like State Street and trust companies like Bank of New York Mellon a lot. Um, they're really well respected. It was common to have you know, your trust certificates or whatever securities held by them and custody by them. And that's just the way things were done. So I expect to Alex's point, a big segment of the wealth in the world and the people that control that wealth, they will do some sort of custodian, a third party custodian and not take self custody. Maybe the solution is that they do something like what our friends at Unchained do where, where um, you control 
two out of three keys or five out of seven or whatever it is at CASA, but um, most of them are just going to rely on a third party to custody if they can. And to Dom's point, he's exactly right that most significant institutions, if not practically all of them, have uh, instructions on like how assets are custodied and held. So it'd be kind of weird to self-custody Bitcoin, unfortunately. At least for institutions and some of the super wealthy people. At the end of the day, you have to have protocols in place to mitigate your liability for access to assets is really what it comes down to. You know, a lot of, for example, private funds nowadays, they don't touch customer money. They don't actually touch customer assets ever. They have a third party administrator who is, um, they have a lot of basically surveillance on them and the governance is done in such a way where it require, you know, moving assets require multiple signatures. Everybody knows who those signatories are. There's a, a clear audit trail of what they're doing. So there's a lot of considerations when it comes to this kind of stuff when you're, when you're dealing with institutions. Now, will Bitcoin change all of this? I don't know. Maybe. That will be interesting to see if, uh, you know, Bitcoin, because of its properties, has the opportunity to change the way humans behave on that scale. Uh, I'm not sure what that looks like. Rightio, uh, we are at the 30-minute mark in the second hour. So we've got block uh, T-Bane up here, um, a.k.a. at BlockBane on Twitter, and also Nuclear Bitcoiner. Good morning to both of you guys. Let's dig into some discussion on mining and energy. Before we do that, very quickly, I'm going to hit some announcements, and then we will roll into that discussion you're listening to cafe bitcoin the place for your morning news preferred hangout for some of the smartest minds in the industry also a podcast on fountain spotify and apple you can catch it there tonight we've got the bitcoin veterans podcast coming up live on twitter spaces check out at bitcoin veterans if you want to know more link etc pacific bitcoin is coming up in october i hope you guys are going i'm really looking forward to that the last one was really cool it was very um, felt in, very intimate because there weren't a, a ton, ton of people. It was like less than, I think, 2,500 people. And it was just very cool. You just walk around and run into your favorite Bitcoiners everywhere, make new friends. And uh, I think one thing that you find out when you run into people that you might hear on podcasts or something like that, you meet them in person, When it, at least when it comes to Bitcoin, they're very not plastic. They're very authentic. They're very real people. Like they're... Who they are in person is who they are when you hear them. Um, they're not like posing or pretending to be something that they're not, which I find very refreshing because I feel like in the legacy fiat world, there's this inclination of people to like, you can't be wrong. You have to always be right. You have to always be the expert. I find that very stuffy and exhausting. Um, right. That's the announcements. T-Bane, good morning. Nuclear, good morning. How are you guys doing? Great. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm doing awesome. I love talking about this stuff with you guys. It's always an enthusiastic crowd to learn about nuclear power. 
Okay. I mean, do you guys want to like take a couple of minutes each and just talk about what, what's on your radar, what you're working on, what you're researching, what you're seeing, latest findings, uh, and we'll just give each of you guys some time to do that. Uh, T-Bane, you want to go first? Sure. Yeah, I'll just uh, I'll make it quick here, give, give nuclear the stage. But uh, in, in general, I think I've, I recently did a discussion talking about Bitcoin and energy at uh, one of my local meetup groups. And I think instead of, you know, fight, I, I guess instead of fighting the energy FUD, I think maybe the best approach now is to embrace it. And so, um, you know, Bitcoin isn't energy money. It's it's one of its it's one of its strongest aspects is that it's intrinsically, you know, uh, connected to to energy and, and separated from state control, and so you can't bail out the laws of physics. There isn't overdraft protection on the laws of thermodynamics. There's no need to fractionally reserve the conservation of energy. Um, you know, the law of conservation of energy, there's no, there's no deposit insurance requirement for the jewel or for the watt. Um, you cannot rehypothecate time and energy and it's impossible to debase the electron. So I think, uh, I'm going to start embracing the energy FUD instead of fighting it. Yeah. I like to flip the framing in reverse on people that complain about the energy FUD and frame it in a way of this technology exists it's not going anywhere. How do we start to take advantage of that? And that's what I've been promoting amongst the nuclear industry, wherever I get the opportunity. And last weekend or two weekends before at the Canadian Bitcoin conference, they were loving it. Many people told us that our panel talking about nuclear energy and the potential that the industry has to be a huge contributor to Bitcoin mining hash rate and distribute it quite globally was a, uh, was one of the top, speakers and panels that they had at the conference so that's pretty high praise considering there was people like tomer and francis and greg and, and lawrence were all up there doing their thing so that was very cool and then the week after i went to the north american young generation and nuclear's annual conference where they were just discussing the state of the industry and what really stuck out to me and one that i really wanted to catch was brad berryman the chief nuclear officer at Susquehanna nuclear power plant was presenting to an audience of nuclear professionals about the data center that they built with Terra Wolf and Talon Energy at that facility. And there was a lot of people in that audience that if they were not paying attention to Bitcoin mining before, they most certainly are now. And there's, there's, there's a lot of interest generating at, at the lower level of just Nobody wants to make a commitment to anything as flashy as Talon Energy at Susquehanna, but I can guarantee you that they are all looking into it and trying to find ways that they can use it to shore up the economics of existing nuclear power plants and also use it as a catalyst to amplify the deployment of the small modular reactors that are going to be built and demonstrated over the next little the next few years coming into the end of the decade. So it's very exciting time right now as the world is starting to catch on better to the value of nuclear energy and that nuclear power is catching on that Bitcoin mining basically presents an incentive to build power for the sake of building power because it will always provide that market for your electricity no matter what your local and supply demand profiles look like. So it's 
very exciting niche to be a part of right now, especially yeah with what's going on in the UAE. I'm sure most of you are familiar with that, with uh, marathons collaborating with the United Arab, the Abu Dhabi Sovereign, or not the, not a sovereign wealth fund, but just one of their, I think it was one of their pension funds or something that's investing in this large project that they're intending to expand it far beyond what it's currently built at at only a few hundred megawatts. So they're, they're very much looking at how this intersection can work well for them. And then they're also getting interest from a lot of their neighboring countries that are confident that they can engage in similar strategies. So yeah, we are, we're still in the gradually phase, but suddenly it's going to be here before we know it. And it's just going to be a lot of nuclear powered Bitcoin mining. Two questions from that come to mind. First is uh, nuclear. Could you clarify just, I might've missed it, but are the, in, in the United Arab Emirates, are they working on doing something with nuclear or are they doing something with their other power generation sources? As far as I know, it's primarily because they just built five gigawatts of nuclear power and integrating that into their grid is not going to be a super smooth and straight, straightforward operation. So part of having the Bitcoin miners there is to manage the different supply and demand profiles that they have between winter and summer. And also like that nuclear power is also going to be used for a lot of desalination operations and to... Uh, like climate control for their uh, growing food in the desert and other uh, cooling techniques that they need to employ where it's incredibly hot. But uh, I don't know if they're doing anything with any of the solar fleet that they have. Like This was only really announced shortly after the, uh, the nuclear reactors started to come online as they started to need to find a home for a lot of excess generation that they did not have before a quarter of their country started being powered by nuclear power. It's fascinating. Uh, something I wonder about is what do you think is going to happen moving forward? Because currently uh, how to operate mining operations, Bitcoin mining operations at scale, you know, I'm talking about like the one terawatt, or I'm sorry, the one gigawatt facility that Riot just broke ground on recently, et cetera. Uh, currently, this expertise is held by these mining companies who are doing this at scale. Do you, I don't know enough about it to, to like, do you think that that's going to be easy to break into? Like our, our energy companies, do you think are going to develop this expertise or do mining companies have sort of a stranglehold on this expertise and information for some time? What do you think that looks like? I would think that at the moment and for the foreseeable future, the, the large established mining companies definitely have an advantage going after large scale operations, but it's inevitable that the power asset owners are going to want to figure this out and develop strategies for themselves, whether it's just, um, have like a, a consulting and, and but not like a direct relationship with uh, established Bitcoin mining companies or for all we know as more experienced uh, technicians and like people like 
like more as we get like more Harry Siddicks and Sean Connells and all like name all the all the guys we're familiar with that are building these institutions and these facilities as more of them are on the market they are inevitably going to start getting scooped up by power country companies that want to create their own like subsidiary mining companies that will collaborate with their own power assets or can be just explore different ways to spin off into their own uh, companies. The ways that it can play out is hard to predict from now because there's so many different variables and game theory to, to how these companies are going to interact with this. But we all can see the writing is on the wall that large power companies are going to be intrinsically linked to Bitcoin mining in some way or another in the not too distant future with probably by like the 30s, it will just be a normal thing to have new power deployments, whether it's nuclear, hydro, geothermal, like whatever, wherever we can harness energy that a small Bitcoin mining operation that's just matched to that narrow margin between supply and demand will, will be slotted in there regardless of like where and how big they want to be. And then it's going to get even crazier when we start getting into deploying like small microgrids that aren't going to be connected to a larger grid and have a means to re uh, like transmit their electricity to another jurisdiction when they're isolated in their own like narrow area. They're going to need something like demand response to play a role, especially if they want to invest in building their future energy needs in the present. Just having that anchor load will significantly de-risk these investments and give investors a lot more confidence that they'll be able to pull their ROIs even just a few years forward that then can be redeployed into larger projects elsewhere and just continue on that cycle until we've basically powered everyone everywhere that needs power. That's at least my hope and vision that I kind of see this playing out if we really like take the restraints off and just let it let the market do its thing. Yeah, this concept of uh, small power generation being planted all around the world is very exciting to me. SMR is like small modular small modular reactors. If I'm saying that right, is a very cool technology, and is within I think the reach of smaller communities and uh, require a lot less capital to deploy. Do you have any thoughts or updates on SMR stuff? They're, everyone's pursuing different strategies. Got like at, on the table 70 different reactor designs being proposed across all the different nations that are already engaged in building nuclear power projects. Um, they're ranging different sizes, so they'll have different applications. Many of them will have uh, different heat profiles compared to the traditional boiled water reactors that only operate up to like 200 to 300 degrees. Whereas the uh, different cooling types will allow them to achieve like seven, 800 degrees. So they'll be able to apply to a lot more uh, like remote industrial operations like mining and refining. And then also using for like district heating, greenhouses, take your pick on any heat application, uh, like pharmaceuticals, breweries, distilleries. Like we can get pretty, pretty bold with, with the applications that we can apply nuclear power to beyond just a large power generator that provides some heat to a local community if it's in the north 
and or just powering a large city or industrial base that we're that has been traditionally kind of relegated to so there's a lot of excitement but the biggest piece of the puzzle is, is achieving the scale that we need of deploying like multiple units rather than one large unit so it's it's a race for a few of them to get to that point in the market where they can commercialize their designs and then really start amplifying the deployment rates. But the capital available to, to do that is limited to, like we can only, we kind of have to pick and choose which ones are going to be the optimal ones to reach that mass deployment point. We don't want, ideally we don't want to have 40 different reactor designs competing for market share and then nobody can get over the finish line when we could choose like six to 10 and have a lot more and cover all of the applications that we need, but not start to cannibalize each other in the markets. But then even when we throw Bitcoin mining into the mix, like that changes that even that paradigm where we might give the opportunity to get more to that, at least that demonstration phase to prove their capabilities and just having this unique load that we can apply anywhere we want can possibly bring more of these reactors to that um, commercialization phase. And then like, all bets are off once they are being built in a mass production facility. Awesome. Let's open it up down Bay. Hey, nuclear <clears throat> cool stuff. I had a quick question. Me and Alex, we did a talk in Juneau, Alaska, and one of the things we learned was that in Alaska, they have the lowest consumption of electricity per capita, but they pay the highest price per capita. You know, it seems like Bitcoin mining can help with this. Is there anything you've been working on and you mentioned about scaling and stuff where you could see Bitcoin mining helping out that uh, discrepancy in, in a state like Alaska? Yeah, like... There's a lot of interest in Alaska and through northern Canada to upgrade a lot of their diesel generation up to nuclear power because that is one of the complications that makes it so expensive and people are frugal with their energy use because shipping in diesel year-round is, is very expensive. And, it, and it, ideally, it should be primarily used for operating heavy machinery and not for heating and cooling uh, or heating and electricity. Um, at least with the nuclear reactors and the SMRs, they'll be able to deploy them in different module sizes that we will be able to um, to match to the local community rather than than having to rely on uh, like a flexible load like um, like having the diesel generators that are there and available when they need them, but expensive. At least we can build excess nuclear power fill it in with the miners, and then we don't have the same risks of leaving that electricity stranded that many of these projects have fallen prey to before in the past, because there's been a lot of interest to build hydroelectric and nuclear in Alaska and northern Canada, but just the, the demand isn't there to justify the economics. So we're hoping that the, yeah, the new generation can overcome that. DJ. Hey, Nuclear. Thanks for being here. Um, can you talk a bit about like the capital investment that's required to do these SMRs and what's like the timeline that it takes to build one? Yes. Once, once they're starting to be built in mass production, 
the expectation is that like depending on the size, the really small ones will be able to be deployed and stood up and operating within six months to a year. That is also contingent upon local environmental licensing. The big capital expenses are on the early regulatory phases, getting these, these projects licensed to at least build the first one, because we have a chicken and egg scenario with the regulations that are all pre predominantly configured for the traditional fleet of boiled water reactors. While it seems like for this new generation of reactors, we need to completely start from like a level zero and rebuild the regulations from the ground up, but they don't want to fully commit to that until everything is, has been proven and demonstrated. So they're trying to do what they can inside the existing framework to at least get to that phase and then concurrently be updating these regulations to be more applicable to the modern reactors because the, the capital cost of building a reactor can be it's Achilles heel, like just looking at a few of the big projects right now with uh, Vogel and, and Hinkley in the UK, the, just the interest on their capital alone, because so much of it is front loaded, often turns out to be like a, a half, if not more of the entire cost of the project. And that's something that I've been thinking about lately. That seems like a pressure point that the anti-nuclear people have put on Whereas a lot of the things that they are concerned with about nuclear power will often result in, oh, it's difficult to insure them. It's difficult to find investors. Oh, they've been relegated to in, like investing in nuclear is, is akin to investing in cigarettes and, and firearms. So they, they get put in these other categories of higher risk, which then increases the, the cost of capital to even embark on a project like this, which has basically made them insurmountable and, and scared away a lot of uh, potential investment that would otherwise want to invest in this technology, which luckily nowadays we are starting to see that turn around. Like Europe's green energy bond now includes nuclear. Canada has flipped in, and they're putting more support backing behind nuclear. Like it's, it is good to see that shifting around, but it was, it was interesting because one of the statements from some of the Sierra Club members that were trying to diminish uh, nuclear's capabilities, they would stress that if it's safe enough to op, or if it's if it's affordable enough to operate, then clearly there is a safety. They're they're doing something that's compromising safety, so they need to be made safer. And then they get made more expensive, and then it just has all these multiple layered effects that have just made building nuclear power plants obscenely expensive, and then layer onto that the second order effects of you're not maintaining a workforce, you're not maintaining your supply chains, and then you go to build a nuclear reactor 30, 40 years after you built the last one, which is like Bogle's an example, and of course you're going to have cost overruns, of course you're going to have like labor deficiencies and supply chain deficiencies, and it just becomes a big mess, and then the anti-nuclear people get to use that as, oh, we, we told you so, this was exactly what we were describing the whole time. But if we'd ignored them the whole time, we've never been in this situation to begin with. So it's there's a lot a lot of obstacles to overcome for this industry because there there is a lot of scrutiny, there's a lot of eyes on it, there's a lot of regulation, but there's also a lot of enthusiasm across like industry, across like a lot of different politics, a lot of just the, the social license to operate nuclear reactors and build nuclear reactors is is starting to 
become more favorable to a lot of people in a lot of jurisdictions. And yeah, just keep an eye out because we're going to start seeing more and more of these projects just get through that licensing phase and get through that very gradual slog. And then once, once we finally have the first demonstrations off the ground, that's, that's when the momentum is really going to begin because it starts with one and then it's four and then it's 20. And then before we knew it, like after 10 years in like the mid thirties, we've got hundreds of new nuclear reactors springing up everywhere across North America. Did I lose nuclear or did everybody? I lost him too. You lost him. Okay. Man, I love what he's talking about though. Totally agree with that concept of small nuclear reactors blooming like fields of mountain flowers. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, there's a really great article by Brandon Quidham. Uh, and it's called Bitcoin right is a Pioneer. Is what the hell oh, is going on in Ukraine? Back. So we lost you for a while. For a yeah, yeah. You were just monologuing like a supervillain in the last, I guess, minute or so. We didn't hear you. Oh, my bad. I was just ranting about uh, like the whole world is still building nuclear power. Like Russia, China, India, like they haven't stopped. They're they're expecting to stand up a new reactor like once every six months at the rate that they're going. And these are like the big gigawatt size reactors. And then there's like Argentina's got plans to have a, a small modular reactor there. They might even have one on the market before the, some of the American and Canadian companies are ready for it. It's, it's a competition to get there first, but also a collaboration to get the industry in a place where we can actually start deploying these next generation of nuclear reactors. Yeah, that's an interesting study of Bitcoin game theory in real time it, it playing out before our eyes, isn't it? Because if certain countries lean into nuclear power generation and then they have all this excess power capacity and their capital deployment actually makes sense because they're, they've got, you know, these Bitcoin mining facilities on site and they're just, they are the future, right? <laughs> and I could see certain countries that lean into this just like racing ahead of everybody else and the countries that oppose it are just going to, you know, they're going to, they're going to dwindle and they're going to fade into the sunset, so to speak. It's very fascinating to watch. Yeah. And on that point, I actually want to add a follow-up question, if you don't mind. Um, do you think that maybe this is a potential like game theoretical situation where Bitcoin mining companies are going to maybe buy these energy companies to then build their own uh, SMRs or maybe even just not even buy these uh, energy companies, but create their own energy through SMRs? So maybe kind of the reverse of what everyone's thinking, which is maybe that all these energy companies are going to go ahead and basically buy miners and hook them up themselves. I think that that is inevitable. Like once there's a commercial market for SMRs and they've been proven that like that they're safe, that they're reliable, that like the, the fuel is, is resistant to proliferating to other uses. And I think once the world catches on to the value of using their nuclear power for Bitcoin mining, they're not going to want to divert their fuel 
to uses like weapons because there's going to be a stronger incentive to be mining Bitcoin with them. So, And even countries that have nuclear weapons may even consider deproliferating in order to get more fuel, to get more hash rate. But like, like that could be the crazy thing. Like who knows? Maybe, uh, maybe someone like Sailor or someone that's sitting on a huge stack of Bitcoin is going to decide to throw some of that capital towards a, one of these SMR companies that they have vetted and, and see uh, a potential to uh, develop just a straight up nuclear and Bitcoin mining strategy going forward. Like I was thinking about this crazy idea how there, there are companies, there's, there's a few like small investment groups that like that I've been seeing in the nuclear space, similar to how the ones that are like just focused on Bitcoin only space. It would be interesting to see one come from the Bitcoin side of things and have an investment fund that can help finance different uh, nuclear power projects, whether it's SMR companies, whether it's like education projects, whatever across the spectrum, but do it denominated in Bitcoin and then have it in such a way that then that Bitcoin be used instead of converting it to fiat, like used throughout their supply chain and then have someone like we, we know that there's the MicroStrategy and there's a few other companies that are trying to develop um, different Bitcoin mining use cases for inside like internal companies with the, the way that they were showing off Lightning. You can have your email address, you can use it to incentivize employees and whatnot, like can currently do something bold like that and just be like, here's a big pot of Bitcoin, you have to use the Bitcoin. Oh, and by the way, here's a bunch of tools and how to use that Bitcoin and just see what happens. It's it would be a bold move, and I don't know if there's anyone out there crazy enough to do it. But if there's anybody, if they'd be in this Bitcoin space, I've always thought about how instead of paying people at the end of the week or biweekly or monthly, you simply stream them sats as they accomplish tasks. So yeah, I think it's a great incentive and a great way to pay because you can pay in Lightning. Yeah, absolutely, and and we're seeing with. With companies like Sonoda, that now you can, you will, soon we'll be able to stream Sats to pay for our utilities. They're going to start with electricity, but then there's no reason that couldn't work for your your natural gas, for your your internet, your cable, your, your phone, and just completely flip the accounting dynamics on how we pay for a lot of those um, utility products that we uh, purchase and use on a pretty regular basis. I'm just seeing all the different pieces. They're, they're they're coming together, and then like I can only imagine like the perspective that someone like Jeff Booth has, where he's he's in the mix of everything. He sees all the companies that are popping up, and and I'm sure in his head, like we all are, is like seeing how they all start to fit together and integrate into a wider ecosystem that's just going to self perpetuate itself. Nuclear. I was I was curious about something. I I read about one of these SMR projects and the proposal was that they were going to use spent nuclear fuel rods as fuel for the SMRs. In other words, they take the old waste products from the the big reactors and they're going to use those as fuel. Is that in your mind, um, is, the, is that like feasible? Is that efficient? Is that a leading candidate in this space or not so much? That's already done by the French and the Russians. Like they each have reactors that can use spent fuel that get, that's been reprocessed from the traditional fleet. So it's and just Japan a matter too, of right? 
Yeah, I think Japan does. Yeah, but like yeah. the technology exists. It's just a matter of developing it to the scale that's going to be required to service a much larger fleet of nuclear reactors. That's going to be using a lot of like fresh nuclear fuel that's either natural or enriched, like the uh, at the varying degrees of enrichment that it needs to get to, and then that's also going to feed into another fleet that uses that as its primary fuel. And like the one that I'm familiar with right now in Russia, they've got um, their, what is it, the, the breeder fast reactor. It essentially creates more fuel than was put in it to begin with. So they can create a self-perpetuating system that that is generating more fuel to burn as you are burning the initial fuel load that was put in there. So there's a lot of expectations that this technology can proliferate quite rapidly once it gets over the, the few technological hurdles in the demonstration phases. And then we are going to have an obscene amount of uranium available to turn into power as we as we move forward into this new paradigm. Because I don't know if any of you have heard like the, the anti-nuclear people will always complain that we we have like 80 years worth of uranium left on the planet. But as far as I'm aware, that's known reserves and that does not count what we can breed into fissile material using the, uh, the fast reactors. Because although like thorium is naturally, naturally fissile, once it's exposed to a like radiation source, it can be bred into a fissile material that can then be used to fuel more reactors. So, and then there's, there are other elements in the, periodic table near uranium and thorium that can also have similar physical um, capabilities that can be bred into a fissile material that can then be fuel in a nuclear reactor. So we're, we are expecting that we are going to have no shortage of uranium and other fissile material to continue fueling our nuclear reactors for centuries to come. And you would hope by then that we've discovered like we, we finally got fusion and then we're going to have lots of fuel for fusion because that uses tritium that is also produced out of it. Traditionally, it's a waste product from the fission reactors. But now if you can purify that tritium instead of just uh, like dumping it and diluting it, that goes for like $20,000 $20, a gram on the open market for the uh, fusion experimentation. And so... It's all going to continue self-perpetuating and driving us higher up that energy like ladder until we are consuming so much energy that we don't even know what to do with it all. And But that's what humanity does is we, we always find a way to use the energy that we have available to us. But we seem to be stuck in this, this fiat world that's limiting our growth and our ability to develop these technologies to their fullest potential. And I... I think I'm quite confident that Bitcoin is the unlock that we've we've been waiting for. And it's just slowly percolating through the system. And then sooner before we know it, discussions like this will will be they won't even be like thought of as 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 like a niche idea. It'll just be like, oh, that's that's just how the system works, because it was just a better way to run the system. That's just how we do it. Common knowledge. All right. This has been really cool. Appreciate it. T-Bane, by the way, throwing you an invite if you want to come up and make any closing comments. Uh, let's move to wrap up. Nuclear, do you have any closing thoughts that you want to make before we wrap here? 
um, just keep an eye on the space. And yeah, if you are interested in investing in anything besides Bitcoin, the nuclear industry and demand for uranium is going to go get incredibly large in the not too distant future. So it's definitely worth keeping an eye on. Very interesting. Bunch of people running out buying nuclear mining stocks right now. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't know. Uh, T-Bane. By the way, nuclear, thanks so much, man. I always appreciate when you come. Learn tons. T-Bane, you got any closing comments you want to make before we wrap here? No, that was all That was all superb. Um, I think I'll just echo a few things he mentioned. Um, you know, currently right now, you, you know, buy we buy the total amount of of uh you know kilowatt hours generated the united states is leading the world in nuclear energy production um you know in terms of electricity but it but it's it's a it's a smaller percentage of our overall pie like i think i think france produces the largest percentage of their electrical consumption from from nuclear but that we still eclipse them in total generation but um to, to nuclear's point we we're going to be behind that metric over the next decade as uh, uh, as as China and Russia keep keep expanding their their atomic energy fleet. So, you know, if, if the United States doesn't start, you know, deploying, you know, next gen nuclear reactor technology, we're we're going to be behind uh, um, in ter in terms of total generation. And and so we're we're currently leading. Um, you know, there's there's just a lot more to do, and I think we we all need to wake up to to the advantages of. Uh, you know, atomic energy and, and it's, uh, it's materially abundant. So yeah, really, really, really enjoyed the discussion and, uh, th thanks. Fantastic. Yeah, if, if anybody has the opportunity to see Oliver Stone's new documentary, the nuclear now one, I highly recommend it. He covers everything very, very well. The nuclear what? Say it again. It's called nuclear. Now. I, I don't know if it's available on streaming. It might be on Apple, but I know it's popping up in theaters randomly here and there but it's a very well put together documentary on the history of the nuclear industry, the, the phase they went through in like when it, after like the eighties and nineties and then kind of into the modern age. So he covered it all very well. Awesome. If you are in the United States and you're listening to this, talk to your representatives, let's get some pro let's get less uh, or sort of anti-nuclear stuff out of the way and let's get some pro-nuclear stuff going because I don't want to fall behind. I like to win. And if your representatives don't listen to you because they're lizards, well, vote, replace their asses. DJ, do you have anything else? Before we wrap? Yeah, I just wanted to say, isn't this where we kind of circle back to the whole tinfoil hat of why nuclear hasn't been adopted, which is probably because of the fossil fuel companies? I don't think we need to guess. I think it's a bit up. It's pretty obvious. There's a very clear history of how that went down. So anyway, we're wrapping the show, so we're not going to, we're not going to go down that road. <laughs> we'll save it for another day. Thanks to nuclear. Thanks to T-Bane. Thanks to the crew who's here all the time, uh, making this thing happen. This has been a great show today. That's a wrap tomorrow on cafe. We've got dirty coin doc documentary about Bitcoin mining coming up yeah and you have been listening to cafe bitcoin the place for your morning news preferred hangout for some of the smartest minds in the industry also a podcast on fountain spotify and apple 
You can throw me or the at Swan handle to follow to be notified of when those drop. Thanks to Swan Bitcoin sponsor of the show. My crew, Ant, Peter, Sats for Life, Wicked, Producer Jacob. I'm your host, Alex Danzig, work with Swan. If you want to know more, shoot me a DM. I'm happy to help you. Thanks again to the guys who come on here every day, teaching people, guys and gals, teaching people about this bright orange future. This is what we call getting on the mission. Love you guys. Everybody go out there. Have a great day today. Bye.